is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is Meg Stafford, a clinical social worker, award-winning writer, and mother to two adventurous daughters. As a lifelong traveler, Meg has been on many expeditions with her kids over the years, but one particularly meaningful trip would go on to inspire her memoir, Who Will Accompany You? My Mother-Daughter Journeys Far From Home and Close to the Heart. When Meg's daughter Kate elected to visit Nepal and Bhutan for a high school project researching the meaning of happiness, Meg decided to go with her. It was a mother-daughter trip that pushed Meg outside of her comfort zone. She found herself avoiding avalanches while climbing to Annapurna Base Camp and dodging paint at Holly Festival in Kathmandu. It also gave her the opportunity to examine what it means for a parent to love and to let go. Please enjoy Meg Stafford. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So I always like to jump in with the same question, which is, where did your love of travel originate? I think that it was always there because I remember even as a very young child, like four years old, I met someone at camp and then we discovered that we lived on opposite sides of a, a there was a U and then we were each on one of the spurs off it. And even at that age, I went by myself through the neighborhood and got to her house by myself. So I think that it was always there. I always loved to go to other people's houses, not because I didn't like being at home. I did, but I was always curious. But I think it was really kicked off in a big way when I was 14 and friends of the family were chaperoning a college trip to Besançon, France. And my friend who was my same age and her whole family were going to be there. So I was able to go along with them. And that just really set things into motion in a big way. So was that your I, first um, trip abroad? Yes, it was. Yes. So it's interesting that my first trip abroad was without my family. <laughs> and the first three weeks there, I stayed in the dorm where all the other college kids were staying until they figured out that I was only 14, turning 15 that summer. And, but I was going to all the parties and staying out till all hours. <laughs> the dream for a 14 year old. Right. <laughs> Amazing. You know, my best friend was 22. We were hitchhiking around. Uh, and then they said, okay, no, no, you can't, you have to be 18 to stay in the dorm. So I went and lived with my friend and her family. And that was great too, because there were lots of kids in the neighborhood and I was with them. So it was all all good. And then I traveled with them around France for the last two weeks of the summer. So I knew that I would go back. And even though I was taking Spanish in high school, I knew I would go back to France and did when I was in college. So that's oh, that sounds so good. There really is like no better feeling than that first trip abroad when everything is so new and unfamiliar in the best way. Right, exactly. I was just t totally taken in. And I didn't know any French before I went, but I was given lessons in speaking only, like intensive speaking lessons. And by the end of my time there, I could really carry on a conversation. So it was, that was helpful as well. 
but, and you yeah. have two daughters now I do has yeah. travel always been a part of your family life Yes, although we did not go. Our first trip abroad with them also, I found out later, was really important to them. My mom spent a number of winters in San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, and we went down to visit for a week one winter when one daughter was nine and the other daughter was 13. And the older one had been taking Spanish in school, and she was able to use it right away. And she actually now teaches Spanish at the high school level. Uh, But the younger one also was inspired by being there. And that really set into motion their their love of travel. And we went together as a family to Italy when they were in one in high school and one in college. And the trip that changed you was inspired by your daughter, Kate, who wanted to study meditation and Buddhism for her senior project in high school, which feels like a very deep topic for a high schooler to want to explore. I'd love to know, you know, more about Kate and what kind of a person she is. She realized through some of her courses in high school that she really loved philosophy. And she had done one of her projects for they do gateways that they were they went to a charter school. And so it's very non-traditional grades, both in grading ABC, but also it, it's grades are like a two-year loop. And in order to pass to the next division, you have to present a project. And the one that she did on philosophy, she realized that she really loved. And so as as her senior project, she decided to study the question, what is happiness? Yes, a very deep question. And she went on to study philosophy also in college along with psychology. So it uh, really stayed with her. Amazing. So the quest, the actual question was, what is happiness? That was what she was trying to find out. Yes. And their senior project is presented as a question and then they do research on that question and present. There are several parts to it, but they do like up to an hour long presentation, what they find. And they're encouraged to go off campus if they like. And she took that as an invitation to, (laughs) to go far away. She certainly did. I hope she got an A for this project because she just <laughs> go above and beyond for it. <laughs> she did. So I think she did. I'm sure she got it. The way they grade is just beginning, approaches, meets, and then exceeds. exceeds. And yeah. So, and they, they can revise them. But I, I think that she did get an exceeds on that project. So initially, she wanted to go on her own, right? She was going to, the right. plan was to go to India um, at first. Right. So how, when she told you that, when she was like, yeah, I'm going to do this project and I'm going to fly to India on my own. As her mother, were you like, oh, no, <laughs> you're not going to do that on your own as a young woman? Right. Well, and we waited a beat because we wanted to see if this was really something that stopped for her and that she really wanted to do. But it was clear that it was. And Yes, we, it's that would be a little a little much to do on your own. It, not with the program, not with anyone there to receive her. It would be a lot to negotiate. Had she picked somewhere closer, more familiar, we might have let her run with that. But it became a wonderful opportunity to me for me to be able to go and satisfy some of my own desire to both be in another place, be with her. And to to trek to the Annapurna base camp was lovely. So good. When I think back to my first big trip when I was young, 
I did yeah. this thing that's pretty common in a lot of the world, which is like the gap year between high school yeah. and college. Yeah. So I went with one friend and we did like a six month trip around the world. And when I think back to it now, I was like, oh, wow, I was 18 when I left. <laughs> and I remember my parents being, they w- had great poker faces, I think, because they were very encouraging. We kept in sporadic, like patchy kind of contact because at this time, this is really going to age me, but, there were, but we didn't really have smartphones. And so you had to go to like an internet cafe or buy a little phone card and go to like a call booth to actually speak right. to somebody. So they would go for like days or sometimes weeks without hearing from me. And I think I didn't realize how truly worried they were until I finally got back to London. I got, I was walking through Heathrow and it was like, that's the um, beginning sequence from Love Actually. And they, they like ran up to me and they were both <laughs> crying. And I was like, Oh, nice to see you. And they were probably like, thank God you're still alive. You made it. You made it home, one piece. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Certainly when I went to France, when I was away for those two months, or even when I was on my semester, I was aerograms only. And so I, I never had a phone call with them. And so it was six months of uh, totally being on my own. And actually, Kate went to South Africa. She was inspired by this trip to take a gap year. And then she she turned 18 and then went to South Africa. And we saw by then we, we could see, we could communicate with her online. She had arrived a few days early and then she went to the hostel where the group was going to be. And then communication dropped off. There was just like nothing. Couldn't get a hold of her. Well, we even called the hostel say, you know, did she arrive? And when she finally got back in touch, the group had decided to go on a little tour before everything started. And she said she'd been, she'd ridden on an ostrich and she'd crawled through cage and she'd bungee jumped off the biggest bridge in the world. <laughs> so like, oh, maybe it was good. We didn't know everything at that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, the things parents go through. <laughs> so back to your trip. So you decided you were going to accompany Kate on this trip. What was the plan that you two had to come up with? She determined the dates of this program at the Kopan Monastery in Kathmandu that was 10 or 12 days. And so I planned my trek around that. And I had a friend from here who was living in Hong Kong for two years. And I got in touch with her and said, what do you think about meeting me in Kathmandu? And we'll trek to the Annapurna base camp. And she wrote back and said, great, but it would have to be in these dates, which were exactly what we were looking at. So that fell into place very easily because I think that we started planning in January and left like a month later. So, and then we had really wanted to, Kate had really wanted to spend time in Bhutan because they study happiness there. They actually have a gross national happiness, but there is a, a fairly hefty daily tax to be there. So we decided we would just go there on our own for a few days at the end. And so, she had her time and then we came back and spent a couple of days and went on to spend a couple of days in Bhutan together, which is lovely. Lisa had to go back, my friend, and then uh, we had the several days together. So it was a nice, nice balance. Yeah, nice balance. I'm lucky that your friend could come. But trekking in the Himalayas is pretty physically demanding, I imagine. Did you have to train at all for this? Not too. I was, I mean, I tend to keep pretty active and I was going to 
Zumba classes a few times a week and I walk my dog several times a week, like three or four miles. So I didn't do anything beyond that. And that, that was enough. We took it pretty slowly. It wasn't like we didn't need any equipment or anything like that because we were just going to the base camp, which was a little over 14,000 feet. So it wasn't, it wasn't that strenuous physically. I mean, it was, we would be hiking for several hours a day. So <laughs> you had to be comfortable doing that, but it wasn't anything technical. So I felt ready. We took six days to get up and four days to come down, which gives you time to adjust to the altitude. So it's often young men who have the harder time because they'll just like charge on up, but then they don't have the time to adjust that way. So it really worked out pretty well for us. Funnily, someone told me that smokers have an easier time on these kinds of um, expeditions. Yeah, because they're already used to getting like less oxygen or something. I don't know if this is true. I need a fact check on this. Um, (laughs) But that's what I've heard. I'm not advocating for smoking, obviously, but I thought that was an interesting fact if it really is true. That is interesting. That's very interesting. (laughs) So was this your first trip to South Asia? Yes. Yes, it was. Well, I'm so curious then to know like what struck you about, it was Kathmandu that you were going to. So what struck you when you first arrived? That the streets were really crowded and I was pretty sure that we would just never make it out of the airport (laughs) or to to the hotel (laughs) without taking out a cow or a pedestrian. And they would give a little toot around blind corners, which were like every other one. But I... I loved all, there was part of me that was overwhelmed by all the activity, but also there was part of me that was really intrigued by it and fascinated by what everything looked like. And it was amazing to arrive there. Kate really got used to it because she spent more time going to Kathmandu. We had just a couple of days before we then headed right out into the mountains. So when we got back, I was really overwhelmed by all the activity because we'd been in silence with with nothing. But, yeah, like um, off-grid in the mountains. It's a totally different yeah. vibe to the city, I'm sure. <laughs> totally different vibe. <laughs> so what was, the, what was a typical day on the track like when you were up in the mountains? Uh, we would get up pretty early and head out typically by like 8 or 8.30 and it started out with the days really being quite warm. And I was wishing that I had more short sleeve things or sort of cooler things to wear. And there were donkeys that were carrying things and people that had things on their backs. And But we would go, it was pretty early in the season. So we would rarely run into people on the trail. And even the places where we stayed were in the beginning pretty empty. There were a few other people, but I just loved all the evolving landscape as we wove our way around. And the places that we stayed in were pretty basic. There was no heating. And I remember the company that set it up for us reminded us to have sleeping bags that were rated to zero degrees. And mine was rated to 15. I thought, that's pretty cold. Isn't that good enough? But they said, well, you can just get a liner so that it will get you rated to zero. So they it was like, okay, we really have to be prepared for very cold weather. And it was 
the higher, obviously the higher up we got, the colder it was. And there was a blizzard at the top. So the our last day of trekking up to the base camp, it was whiteout conditions. And there was this little black dog that was near, must have lived between some of the places up there, but he really led Lisa up to the top. She wasn't feeling great and she was just really booking it. And he he led her there and I was with the guide. So that was really amazing. And I opened the door in the middle of the night needing to duck out to the facilities and he zoomed into our room and we just let him stay there because it was so cold and yeah, he was he was just quiet and went to sleep there. So. That's so sweet. I feel like every trip needs a friendly dog. I just went to Costa Rica and I made a little dog friend and then I nearly cried on the last day. I was like, no, I don't I love all the animals. I love to see them. I love to. And uh, Lisa, who had been living in Hong Kong, was familiar with the monkeys. And she said, they look cute but they will take your stuff and like your camera is the same as a sandwich or so hang on to your stuff. They're cute, but beware. They can be really mischievous. I am a major monkey hater. I had a bad experience. I don't know if you've ever been to Bali before, but there's Uh this place called Monkey Forest, which is, it's beautiful. There's loads of monkeys roaming and it's full of tourists. And so these monkeys are pretty bold (laughs) Uh and one of my friends, they're just crazy. They jump on people's heads and like pull their glasses off. One of my friends was sat on the wall and this monkey came up and took his hand. We were like, oh my God. And then the monkey just went, ah, just bit him. (laughs) Yeah, we had to get a rabies shot after that. Um, Oh, wow. And another one came up. I was drinking a bottle of water and he took the water, unscrewed the lid and then threw it on the floor. And I was like, that is just mean. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a monkey fan, very wary of them. So I'm glad someone gave you a heads up because, yeah, Mischievous is uh, is putting it lightly. So we actually did not have any trouble with them. But I'm curious to talk to you about your experiences with the other hikers because my feeling is that the best conversations happen when you're hiking. I think it's something about the fact that you're being physically active and there's like a sense of forward momentum, but you're not looking each other directly in the eye. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like you can kind of be candid and vulnerable in a way that you wouldn't be if you've met somebody over the dinner table, for example. So were there any uh, fellow hikers that you bonded with on your travels? Well, Lisa, who I traveled with, I actually had never done anything with. We were part of a, a coaching cohort studying executive coaching, and we had continued, several of us continued meeting as a group. So I knew her from that. But apart from that, we had never so much as shared a cup of coffee or a meal or or anything. So we spent a lot of time getting to know each other. But then when we would arrive places, dinners were often together. And there were a few people who we ran into several places. And there were these four young guys traveling together. And one of them was from Nepal. And two of them were from New Paltz, New York. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah. it's just right up in the Hudson Valley, which is where I was from. So uh, the Newburgh, New Paltz, and my dad taught at New Paltz. My mom was living in New Paltz. So it was wild to run into them there. And New Paltz has a lot of climbers, actually, because there are places there where you can 
practice like more technical hiking because of the the way the cliffs are. So people in that area, it's the Shawangunk Mountains, but it's really pretty. And there was an instant bond just knowing that. But when we got to the top at the Annaberta, at the, the base camp, and there was this blizzard, we were all just hanging out in this dining room. And there were a group of people, I think they were from Korea, that were playing cards. There was a group of people that were doing like eating. And then there was a whole bunch of us that just told stories. So it was a really fun time to to spend all together. There was nowhere else to be or to go, but it was really fun to hear what everybody had to say. And almost everyone told a story that involved travel in some way. Oh, I love that. And you're a um, social worker with a private clinical practice, right? So you kind of, you're you're a therapist, essentially, you're a counselor. Do you find people just open up to you more easily than they might the average person? I think so. You know, sort of, I don't know what they experience with other people, but people are generally friendly and pretty open. So I, I certainly have feedback that my, like my daughter's friends, there, some of them are like extra daughters when they've been around and that I, I love that. That's really special for me, but it's, it's on the trail. It's always fun to meet people. Do you have any ways of connecting with a stranger that kind of speed up that? getting to know you phase? I definitely think I try to take a reading about, you get a lot of information just by the expression on people's faces. If they seem open to conversation, if they are engrossed in something and not wanting to be talking, but I will sometimes make comments about what we're doing or what we're seeing or what's happening. And if they're responsive that way, then it's, easier to have a conversation. I noticed I was on the plane next to someone and I realized that so many people now have headphones. It used to be a lot easier because the headphones really, I'm reluctant to just interrupt someone and talk to them that way. But it wasn't until we were, it was on my way back. My daughter was living in London. Kate was living in London for a year and on my way back from that, that we finally started a conversation not too far from landing. And it turned out he was doing something really interesting in Boston. He was from Australia. And it's like, I was like, oh, I should have started a conversation earlier (laughs) rather than 40 minutes before we're about to land. So it's easier if people aren't too busy in their own things. And there's a good point about the headphones. And people also have noise counseling headphones. So they really, even if you try to get their attention, unless you physically tap them on the shoulder, there's no way they're going to hear you. Right. Right. And I'm conscious of that myself when I am wearing, I really, for a long flight, I really like to have it, but it's part of the fun of travel that you're seated next to someone that you don't know. And I'd like to at least have the opportunity to know them a little bit. It's such a little snippet of connection. Well, the moment you guys had in the dinner hall during the whiteout sounds like it was a beautiful moment of connection. Um, But were there any other magical moments from that first part of your trip on the hike? One of the things that was really fun was with Lisa, my friend. So there was, I really got to know her, but there was one night she was really worried about, she was worried about altitude, but also about avalanches because we had run into people who had said that they were like literally running, trying to outrun it. That was terrifying. And it was the middle of the night. I just happened to be up 
and I started hearing like tap, 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 and it was hail. And I knew that that's what it was. But when it got loud, it woke her up and she was like, she was really scared, but I had just, just hail. And then it was over very quickly. And she said, let's go outside. It's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, I mean, put things on, get dressed up and, and just and all our stuff and go back out. But it was really amazing because after this intense hail, it was just a sky full of stars and, you know, so dark because there was nothing out there. And it was really lovely just to be out there and witnessing it together. And there were little piles of hailstones, like little eggs <laughs> in a nest everywhere. So that was, oh, wow. that was a, a lovely moment to share with her. Yeah, a little spontaneous moment. Those are always good. So when you got back to Kathmandu, you went and spent a night in the monastery with Kate that coincided with Holi Festival. For those who aren't familiar, can you tell us what that is and what you experienced? Uh, It is a very upbeat and fun festival where people throw balloons filled with red, yellow, and orange water and pigmented with regular with red orange and yellow and they throw them at each other so people literally end up covered in color from head to foot and people are in good moods it's it's very fun so our guides had actually suggested we stay inside for that day but there was no way like <laughs> we're only here for a couple of days no way i'm going to spend it indoors but having just come from this really meditative and quiet trip. Once I got hit with one, I decided that that was, I couldn't handle it right then. And we took a taxi from there, but it was fun to have it around us. And I don't know, I naively thought that they would exempt us as tourists, but clearly they were wanting to include us in the fun. (laughs) There's like Sokran in Thailand, you know, the new, their new year festival with the water fights. It sounds quite similar to that. And everywhere you go, people are just throwing water over you or like getting you with a water pistol. It's so fun. But yeah, you have to be in the right frame of mind for it. And I guess the, it probably felt a little chaotic in contrast to what you just experienced. Yes. Yeah. And I think had I had a little more prep for it, I could definitely have geared up for it. And certainly I, my clothing, it wouldn't have mattered, but it, it was too too swift a transition for me. But it was still really fun to be there and to see it. And for the second part of your trip, you and Kate traveled to Bhutan, which from what I've heard, is a very special place and one that feels like relatively untouched by globalization. They're very careful about how many people are permitted to enter the country each year. And it's a very, a a way of life that's really been preserved compared to a lot of places. What was your experience there? How did it strike you when you arrived? First, very quiet, because coming from Kathmandu, which has millions of people and the whole country of Bhutan only had at at the time, 700,000. So the streets were very quiet. The roads were in good condition. The car was new and very well kept. And so it was a, a big contrast in that way. And even on the streets in Paro that where we started out, it was very quiet. It, it, the whole thing, it felt very orderly and much more everything intentional. 
And they even were very specific about the kinds of places where we would stay and what kinds of foods we would eat. And it was different to have that kind of so much guidance. And I think had we been able to spend more time there, we would have been able to get out into the country more. But they had, there were very particular kinds of places that they wanted us to see and go. So it was very, very guided. And there would be little bits of time where we would have time on our own and we could wander around on our own. But it's a very mountainous country. The whole country is extremely mountainous. And that's where we went to the Taxang Monastery. Which which, is is called, known as Tiger's Nest, right? Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah, the one that's built into the mountainside just is so captivating. I remember seeing a picture of it online and thought, wow, we just got to (laughs) go. So, Did you get uh, to go inside or did you just go nearby? Yes, we did get to go inside and they take your bags and things because they don't want want you to bring anything and pay a small fee, but you can go inside. And in... Bhutan, there are prayer wheels for people to spin on the streets. Every they're everywhere, so it it is just woven into their lives, and definitely is important to them. Preserves that sense of history, really, history mm-hmm. and connection to Buddhism. And famously, it's a country where the government judges the country's progress based on a gross national happiness rather than the gross domestic product which I guess is why Kate must have selected it, as she mentioned earlier, as part of her project. What did she learn there in terms of, what did you both learn there in terms of research about the level of happiness that the Bhutanese have? From three days, it's hard to get a total sense, but people seemed content, but it was hard to really have a lot of language, a lot of discussion with them. Certainly everywhere we went, people were polite and it felt calm. There weren't crowds anywhere. The office manager where she went to school knows the king. So we had thought that maybe there'd be able to be some connection. We could hang out there longer, but that that didn't... (laughs) Hanging out with royalty, casual. (laughs) Just a few days with the king and queen. They clearly really adore the king and queen. And there are portraits of them everywhere. And it's hard to imagine having the king and queen be so interested as to they literally send out a survey to people to find out about their happiness. Like it's hard to imagine that happening here. (laughs) Having that be a measure of how successful a country is. Yeah. I just got back from a trip to Finland, which famously is supposed to be the happiest nation in the world. And I thought it was interesting because when I asked the Finns about it, they were like, I'm surprised kind of because we're a pretty melancholy people by nature. You know, they have these really intense, long, dark winters. And, you know, they I thought they were so lovely, but they're not like outwardly, you know, exuberant or yeah, like extroverted particularly. But I think the happiness there comes from having an amazing social support system. Mm hmm. You know, we even went to, they, for their 100 years of independence anniversary, the government built a huge central library in Helsinki. And it's beautiful. It has all this co-working space. There are also amazing services that you can go in and use 3D printers. You can use recording studios to make music. There are like test kitchens so you can like learn to cook. 
there's so many resources that, wow. that are just available for free to the public. There's also like a daycare there. And it's just, I was blown away by it. So I think things like that really make a difference to people's level of happiness. And obviously the States doesn't have that. But I think one thing that we have here that a lot of countries don't have is this like sense of possibility. I think as a foreigner and expat living here, that's what I find intoxicating about America is this sense of possibility that like you of your own potential and that anything could happen. You know, <laughs> it feels like a lot of countries don't have that, you know, it's not the society isn't set up that way. And there's good and bad things about each side. But I think in places like Bhutan or in Finland, I think there's a sense of like enoughness. You know, they they might never be like incredibly wealthy, like some Americans are, but I think that they have a sense that what they have in their culture and in their life is enough and it's satisfying. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. It is a trade-off. And like Kate would ask a lot about that. I was talking with someone last week who's from Canada and having the assurance of coming here and not of living someplace where you don't have to worry about paying for your health care or you don't have to worry about paying for college. It's like there's so one person was from Canada, one person was from Afghanistan. And I had also spoken with an exchange student I had interviewed and written an article about from Pakistan. And so that's part of the challenge here of like you have to do that yourself or find a way to do it. But I guess coupled with you can do it. There are ways to do it. And it's almost whatever you want to do, you can. But but yeah, there's the burden of the way it is here as well. And uh, Kate, having spent a lot of time in the UK, and she was playing ultimate Frisbee a lot of times, and she had a couple of injuries. And it's like, just NHS will see her and take care of her. And that was very reassuring. It affects all the choices you make about what you're doing and how much money do you need to earn to feel like it's enough or to what kind of college do you want to go to? What are your priorities or saving for retirement? All the So true. It definitely encourages striving, you know, the culture here, which in some ways is really exciting, you know, and it, there's a lot of people with a lot of ambition here and it brings in foreigners who have a lot of ambition and that creates a lot of innovation. but. But yeah, there's no like sense of safety or security. And I think all humans do need that sense of safety and security. Yeah, I think that's a nice place to start to have that as a base. A foundation. Years ago, I thought about looking at the world as a whole. It seems like the West Coast of California, the West Coast of the United States in California, where I spent a year is like in its adolescence and things change very quickly. There's a lot of transition. Things are impermanent. A lot doesn't stick there. And then on the East Coast, we're very ambitious and hard driving, hardworking. And so maybe more like people in their 20s and 30s, like really charged up and things change a little more slowly. Then you get to Europe. And it's a bigger view and more like middle age that have a much things again, shift more slowly, but also there's a bigger perspective about things. And then you get to the Far East, like old age, again, even longer perspective. The Japanese, I think, may plan hundreds of years in advance. And it just is something we can't conceive of here. And there are advantages of the different aspects. 
That is an interesting observation. So this trip ended up inspiring the first half of your book, Who Will Accompany You? My Mother-Daughter Journeys Far From Home and Close to the Heart. Tell us how the book came about. That trip, the original title was going to be Sitting on Top of the World because Kate was literally sitting, meditating for hours, some days, and I wasn't sitting, but I was felt like being on the top of the world in the Himalayas. But I realized that it wasn't enough. And that also I wanted to include my older daughter. And the title actually, the Who Will Accompany You actually comes from the title of one of her blogs, her blog posts, because she she was literally doing accompanying. But as she was reflecting on it toward the end, she was really asking, as I am, who will accompany you in life? And she was asking her readers or us or as email recipients, like, who will accompany me? And she's saying, well, you are, meaning we, the readers of her emails or her blog, are accompanying her. So it was actually one of my first editors that suggested lifting that as the title. And then we worked on the subtitle. And again, one of my editors who suggested the last chapter, because she said, people are going to want to know, where's your husband? <laughs> you know, what's, what does he think about this? How come he hasn't been along? But so it felt like the, the finishing piece of it and that it just felt right. As soon as I realized that there had to, it had to have the part about Gail's time in Columbia and my visit with her there, it fell into place. Sorry. Let's talk about the, the trip to Columbia because I know that was another concerning thing for you when, uh, when your, right. when your daughter said she wanted to go there for work. Right. Yes. It was, I just told a story about this for stories from the stage, but it, it was, I tried very studiously to stay out of that decision, but also knew that it was her passion to be there and really important to her. And so wanted to be able to support her as best as I could, but it was. And what was the, the work that she was going to be doing? She was living and working for the first part, first nine months in a community called the Peace Community. And they intentionally are not aligned with the military, the paramilitary or the guerrillas. But none of those three groups trust their neutrality. So they were subject to attack from them. And there was a point at which several of the leaders of the community were rounded up and shot. So they involved the group that Gail was with to literally walk with them from one place to another. And so they were providing unarmed accompaniment. They would wear bright blue t-shirts and walk with them from one place to another and serve as a reminder not to interfere with the community. And their group was connected to the UN and a lot of other international organizations. So if anything were to happen, it would be internationally known. So it does work. And they, they're they headquartered in Bogota, where she spent the second nine months. So they were constantly in communication when they would receive a request for accompaniment and assess whether they could do it. So it was a fascinating concept. And it's the community that she was living in was a 45-minute open-air Jeep ride and an hour-and-a-half hike to get there. Yeah. So you went, you went to actually stay with her on this trip? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we spent three days in Cartagena first, 
she had a little break. And then we came back and I went with her and stayed in the community for a few days. I mean, it's such important work that she was doing. And I'm sure you must have been really proud as a mum. And I'm also interested to know whether you've wondered how you ended up with two such adventurous daughters. Was that something you, you know, purposefully tried to cultivate in them? Or is that just how they turned out? I think it's just how they turned out. It's because certainly as parents, there are things that we very intentionally convey or expect with our children. But there are some things that I think that they both have a natural bend towards. And also, I think they pick up from us what we are excited about. Because I, they knew that I had traveled and that I crossed the United States by bus when I was 22 and lived in California for a year, traveled up the coast. And then I lived in England in Bristol for That's where months. I'm from. You're from Bristol? Yes. In <laughs> fact, <laughs> Kate and I just went when I was there last year. We spent a couple of days in Bristol because I, I still have some friends. I'm still in touch with some of the people there. So it was really fun. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. I'm yeah. literally about to go home on Friday. I haven't been back for several years now, really, during the pandemic. Oh. But oh, um, wow. right. yeah, I had a baby. So I'm like, we should bring her home and <laughs> show her to everybody. Show her off. But sorry, I totally got excited there and, and interrupted your flow. <laughs> I love Bristol also. <laughs> Um, so they knew that I had done a lot of traveling and and that I was still excited to to do it. So I'm sure that that is a part of it. But I know that that trip to Mexico set them off. And then when we went to Italy and went to Venice and Verona and Florence, that that also was inspiring to them. Mm-hmm. Gail spent time abroad when she was in college. So. When Kate was younger, she was actually much shyer about travel. But at, when she became a teen, she felt like, well, Gail's been doing all this travel. I want to travel too. And it was a little more of a tra- little more of a challenge for her, but it set into motion the trip to Nepal. Then she went and spent time in South Africa for a gap year and decided from that that she wanted to study abroad. So she actually went to uni in Edinburgh. And then, then lived in Australia and traveled in Southeast Asia. So Gail spent a year and a half in Colombia and has been to Mexico a few times. And it has been important to both of them and still is. <laughs> I feel like my, my parents were very into traveling when they were younger and they raised us to be travelers. And sometimes I'm like, wow, do you regret that now? Because they've got me over here in the States. And then my other brother, my middle brother is in Sydney. And then my sister is trying to move to Canada. <laughs> so well, she, oh, they basically wow. got one brother that's going to stay in Bristol, potentially. Uh-huh. But but yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like you're, what you strive for as a parent, right? To create these like adventurous, bold, independent people. But then when they're so far away, it must be hard. Right. Yeah, there was a time when... I think Gail was in Chile and Kate was in New Zealand because she'd spent six months living there and neither one of them was able to be reached at that point. They were both, and it just like, okay, we just have to trust that (laughs) everything is fine and send it through the, send it through the ether. And so that they were in far away at different times. And now they're both in Somerville, which is, 40 minutes from where we are. So that's, oh, that's really wonderful. Right. 
So it's a treat to have them close enough by both of them right now. So, yeah. Well, I'm sure as, as well, like the both of these trips that went into your book, it must have been such a wonderful experience to share with them. And I'm curious to know, you know, how, when you look back on this trip to Nepal and to Bhutan, how do you feel that that changed you as a person? It definitely reminded me how important it is, how much, how much I love it and really need it that being in different places in every way, culturally, the scenery, the food, all of it, I just crave it and feel like it is, it's a really important part of me, which I hadn't done a lot of traveling for the chunk of years when I mean, we went to Maine, we went various places in the States together, but I hadn't really been abroad. And it just, I love the openness that comes with it. And it's really, you can really be present and just taking it in. And I was reminded of how crucial that is for me, for a lot of people. And it doesn't always have to be so far, but there's nothing else like it. And it is so satisfying, I'm sure, you know, to be in places and introduced to new things, new sites, and very wonderful to be sharing that with someone else and seeing what they think about it. And with with each of them, just special to have that time where you're not thinking about anything else other than what you're doing right then, where you're going to go that day, what you're going to do. And it runs deep. So was really important to be reminded of how critical that is for me. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Meg. And I hope to take a similar trip with my daughter one day in like 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will. I'm sure long before that you'll be places. Uh, Absolutely. Enjoy it. Have a great time back in Bristol. <laughs> thank you. And where can people find you and your work on the internet? on www.megstafford.com and also the www.whowillaccompanyyou.com and find me there as well. Instagram, Meg Stafford 2183, Facebook, Meg Stafford or LinkedIn. Meg Stafford Stafford all across the internet. Before you go, I'd love to do a quick fire round if you have the time. Okay, so what's the first, what's the one thing that everybody should experience in their lifetime? To go someplace different, if you can get to an ocean, if you've never seen one, and if you can get to big mountains, those are just, they're all inspiring. So, and if not, make sure you get to your nearest state park, because it is it is still, still beautiful. What's the one thing you never travel without? camera and phone (laughs) (laughs) that's the most that's the most common answer if you could teleport anywhere just for the day where would you go and what would you do bali has really been calling me so many places are i would it seems like the overall besides the beauty there the overall atmosphere also seems to just promote a sense of well-being and that sounds like just the right thing What's your favorite destination for a mother-daughter trip? Any beach or mountains. Beach, mountains. It was wonderful to go to London together, Paris. Any, they're all wonderful as long as they're new and you're together. Uh, what's a recommendation for a book, 
podcast or show to stay entertained on a long journey? Uh, I love the moth. I love the story and stories from the stage. I love the storytelling ones. Um, Is that a podcast? Yeah. And so a show, 800 Words, which takes place in New Zealand, also a delightful show. It's about Um, a columnist who uh, moves with his two teenage children from Australia to New Zealand. And they're just delightful characters there. Very fun. I'll have to look that up. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? Besides Bali. (laughs) Besides Bali. Um, The Southwest of the United States, actually. I went through on my way years ago. So I went to the Grand Canyon by myself when I was 22. But I haven't been to Santa Fe or that whole area. So that is also high on my list. Thank you so much. You've been great, Meg. Thank you. It's been really a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line and please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.